Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. I'm Bill Walton. Well, I'm here today with my good friend, Frank Gaffney, who, as you know, is host of Securing America with Frank Gaffney on on Real America's Voice, and is also the founder of the Center for Security Policy, and uh, a great patriot and great friend to Americans and and our freedoms. And I've asked him to join because we have a very, very interesting um, guest joining us, uh, Ben Weingarten, who... uh, as you may know, is uh, editor-at-large for Real Clear Investigations, uh, contributes to The Federalist, Newsweek, uh, New York Post, Epic Times, incredibly prolific. And he is also author of a terrific, I won't say terrific, but alarming book called American Ingrate. Also terrific. Also terrific, but uh, uh, upsetting, uh, about uh, Omar What's her last Ilan name? Omar. Ilan, Ilan Omar. But what we want to talk about today is he, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, he uh, gave a testimony before Congress called Censorship Laundering, how the U.S. Department of Homeland Security enables the silencing of dissent. And specifically, he gets into an agency of Homeland Security called CISA. Well, you may never heard of CISA, but CISA's heard of you. And it turns out the kind of surveillance they've been doing about all Americans on topics that uh, they think are, are, are national security matters um, is, is just, an, just a stunning re- revelation about how out of control our, our governments come with the surveillance state. Uh, anyway, he, it was May 11th testimony. I, I encourage you all to go on the, on the Internet and take a look at the testimony online. But maybe you won't have to because we're going to cover all the good stuff today. Uh, Ben, welcome. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Glad, glad to have you here. Uh, so give us a quick overview of CISA and, and what's at stake here, and then we'll get into the, uh, the, the, the unseemly details about what they're doing. Well, CISA is a microcosm, or CISA's operations with respect to censorship directly and by proxy via social media platforms is really a microcosm of a much broader theme that I think the American people have become well aware of, which is that there's been a mass public-private censorship regime foisted upon us that runs from merely shadow banning or flagging tweets and Facebook messages all the way up to deplatforming and perhaps even debanking people. And then even more alarming to actually throwing people dissenters in jail for their views rooted in an ideology which says that speech that the authorities don't like constitutes a a quote-unquote threat to our democracy and then using that as a justification to engage in a slew of acts that i think most americans would say violate their core most civil liberties and CISA, you have to ask the question, how is it that a sub-agency of the Department of Homeland Security that most Americans, as you know, it have probably never heard of, came to play a role as what's been described in court filings as a nerve center of these mass public-private censorship regime 
activities. And I lay that out in my testimony, but the kind of top level notes are that the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has stretched its mandate, its mission to essentially say that anything Americans say that's disfavored by authorities might constitute a threat to our critical infrastructure, which CISA is tasked with coordinating the defenses around. And so consequently, your tweets about matters ranging from election integrity and mail-in balloting and the outcomes of elections to virtually anything and everything around the Chinese coronavirus, and now potentially a whole slew of other highly contentious and subjective issues, constitute essentially many digital terrorist attacks to be neutralized accordingly. And I think that's the framing by which we ought to see it. And this reflects broader mission creep within our national security apparatus, where you have an entity like DHS broadly, who was originally created in the wake of September 11th to target foreign jihadists, now training its sites and its awesome powers on domestic wrong thinkers as the preeminent threat. And we can get into the various ways that CISA has played an integral role in censoring American speech via the social media platforms, both directly in stark detail, as well as indirectly, which takes on a potentially more insidious form. Well, the CISA is a piece of Homeland Security. How, how big is CISA? It has thousands of employees, doesn't it? It's all over the country. And well, and, you know, by the standards of the federal government, you could say that this is a relatively small entity. I think in their last budget request under the Biden administration, they're asking for three plus billion dollars, which represents actually a pretty significant increase from where it started out when CISA was originally established back in 2018. But its power is way outsized relative to the personnel there or the dollar figures well, associated well, with it. And, and I'll explain how in, in a well, few you're, separate you're, ways. You're, you're, you're going to describe that. I just wanted to get so a lot of this fact, a lot of this came out as a result of a lawsuit, Missouri versus Biden, which gave us information which we never had before. Homeland Security is supposed to protect us from foreign bad guys, terrorist people wanting to hurt us from outside the country. But now, you know, you hear Mark Milley, who's our head of the chief of staff, talk about the biggest threat to America are white supremacists. Um, seems like CIS has taken the same point of view, and now they've trained their guns at domestic, so-called domestic threats, among whom are about 150 million people who may have voted or may have been supporting Donald Trump. So they've 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 aimed their weapons at uh, at us. Right. We've met the enemy, and it is Jump us. In, Frank. Um, ben, I, I think one place that it would be very helpful for you to sort of illuminate, because it, it seems as though this is where CISA first broke into the public consciousness, was in connection with election integrity, specifically the election of 2020, and um, comments that were made at the time by the guy who was responsible for the organization concerning well, the abundant evidence that there were real problems with election integrity in that cycle. Um, remind us what we learned in that course and, and most especially what they were doing in the run-up to the election in CISA. Yeah, well, as, as you allude to, 
the only knowledge that most Americans probably have of CISA is that they might recall CISA's director, Christopher Krebs, now former director, who said that, you know, essentially the 2020 election was the most above board, cleanest election, most secure election in American history. Right. Uh, in order to provide that security, so-called, CISA, through three different means, tried to censor wrong think about mail-in balloting, questions about changes to election rules and policies, sometimes in real time while they were still being debated mm. and grappled with at the state legislative level and then within state executive branches as well, they sought to tamp down any questions first about the essentially rules and regulations and procedures and then around the outcomes, which obviously to every American when you look at an election night, well, first of all, when you have the first mass mail-in election in American history where the rules and regs are being changed, sometimes by executives, not by legislative branches, in real time. And then in the most hard-fought states where you have simultaneously the stopping of the counting of the votes, and we can run through the whole litany of things that would make anyone question you know, what's going on here relative to a normal election. Well, at the very same time, we found out that, as Bill noted, largely through discovery in this undercovered but hugely significant case, Missouri v. Biden, that CISA was engaged in three activities to essentially regulate speech that we never voted for, gave them authority for, by the way, to regulate speech around the election. And those were, first of all, convening these mass meetings between the likes of CISA officials, the FBI, other governmental administrations, we suspect potentially the CIA and other three-letter agencies as well, and not just the big tech companies, uh, but also telecommunications companies broadly, convening these industry meetings where they talked about the imperative to combat, quote-unquote, mis-, dis-, and malinformation, and in fact, asked the companies to talk about their terms of service i.e., what constitutes offending speech that ought to be potentially ripe for censorship. And we know now that officials during these meetings essentially groomed the social media companies to be on the lookout for quote-unquote hack and leaks. And you can draw a direct line from these meetings and the conversations that officials were having with these companies regarding hack and leaks and changes in terms of service to the fact that these companies did in fact change their terms of service to suppress content communications around quote unquote hack and leaks, which led to the suppression of their Hunter Biden laptop story. And thus one of the gravest instances of domestic election interference right. in the run up to the 2020 election. Well, let's talk about how they got there. I mean, uh, Christopher Krebs began to redefine their mission. They, they, you know, they're supposed to protect American infrastructure that was the mandate. And I guess when the Homeland Security started, we were thinking about bridges and tunnels and, and the World Trade Center. And they've redefined that to basically infrastructure means anything they want it to mean, uh, which, which includes every institution, including elections. But the current director, Jen Easterly, who not surprisingly worked in the Obama administration, uh, uh, has argued now, and this is the most stunning thing in your testimony, I thought, is that uh, the American mind is our cognitive infrastructure. And therefore, it's not only what also, we do. Within 
CISA's purview. But, but within purview, the American mind is, is, is the key infrastructure which they're targeted at, which means not only what we say, but what we think. Ben? Yeah, it's, it's, it's stunning. It's sort of a microphone drop moment. And <laughs> maybe even more stunning is that the, this is the view that kind of pervades the entirety of our current national security and law enforcement apparatus. So to your point, Jen Easterly, the current director of CISA, she says that CISA is tasked with defending our most critical infrastructure and our most critical infrastructure is cognitive infrastructure. And she said this in context of her remarks talking about beefing up CISA's counter mistis and malinformation capacity. So to your point, there were two major switches that occurred in at least the, the private thinking and then ultimately it manifested itself in the public acts of CISA and I think more broadly across the national security and law enforcement apparatus. Go back to January 6, 2017, and the outgoing DHS secretary during the Obama administration, Jay Johnson, designated election infrastructure as a critical infrastructure subsector. And so that put election infrastructure under the purview of what would ultimately become CISA when it was established in 2018. Now, let's note that if you go back to the statements that Jay Johnson made at the time, when they defined election infrastructure, it had nothing to do with your tweets and Facebook posts about mail-in ballots. Of course, it was presented as hard infrastructure, like voting machines, for example, and systems and processes. There was another switch as well that occurred. Originally, this sort of moral panic around misdis and malinformation, which, which alarmed the national security and law, law enforcement apparatus, and of course, the media as well, was rooted in the idea that the Russians interfered in the 2016 election. And of course, that Russian interference could be tied to Trump-Russia collusion and thus, this posed a dire threat to the homeland and our election integrity. Quickly, they shifted between 2016 and 2020 to targeting from moving from foreign interference to the various foreign interference task forces or foreign influence task forces that were set up, including within CISA, including at the FBI, to targeting domestic wrong think, or at least not looking at the origins of the purported wrong think being put out on social media. So. Basically, they took their mandate to def defend infrastructure to encompass virtually everything up to the words that people might say about elections as if they are threats to election infrastructure. And then they also shifted from foreign to domestic. And now, as you know, it, it's expanded under this view that cognitive infrastructure is our most integral infrastructure, and thus it's a national security imperative for the deep state, essentially, to police our thoughts. Well, uh, this is the Bill Walton Show, and I'm here uh, today's show with my co-host, Frank Gaffney. I'm delighted. And we're talking about Ben Weingarten, who's uh, given a very riveting and powerful testimony to Congress about CISA and the abuses that uh, they're heaping on the American people and our privacy and now our, our thoughts. Uh, but you mentioned three terms here. I think it's worth fleshing them out. CISA has three words that it seizes its mandate, misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. And the way they define these, they kind of can get anything they want out of it. Misinformation is, is false, but not, not meant to cause harm. Disinformation is deliberately created to mislead, harm, or manipulate. But then the third one, malinformation, is that which is based on fact but which is used out of context to mislead, harm, or manipulate. 
So this is a, this is a, an interstate highway. They can drive every truck through they want to the uh, to, to nail Americans. Frank, right. you you want? No, this is this is very much at the core of what uh, Ben's talking about here. Is they've got a comprehensive approach that gives them a pretext to control thought as well as actions in a whole variety of ways that um, I, I think were not contemplated by the law are completely at odds with our Constitution. Frank, how different is this from what the Chinese are doing? Ben is a close student of the Chinese, too. He might want to ask his opinion on this, but I think it's one and the same. Ben? I mean, we've been talking, Frank and I have just finished up talking about China and the threat there, but, you know, I, I, we're, all, we're all up in, up in arms now about TikTok, but, you know, I'd rather worry about CISA than TikTok at this point. You've got to worry about both. Yeah, our... As Frank and I have spoken about before, our CCP-captured elites are running kind of a bootleg version of an American, a, a social credit system with American characteristics. <laughs> so it may not be as brazen, it may not be as pervasive and chilling yet, yet. but it's well on the way exactly. to that point. And the rhetoric of our leaders certainly echoes it. If you were to look at China's national security law with respect to Hong Kong, you can see parallels to what's going on here in terms of policing our thoughts and worse under the guise of combating dangerous mis-dis and malinformation. And let me just note the seminal document and CISA's activities flow naturally from this, although they were occurring even before this document codified this worldview. But I continue to go back to, and I hope viewers and listeners will check this out, the Biden administration's national strategy for countering domestic terrorism. That document lays out in no uncertain terms that it is a, in terms of confronting the long-term contributors to domestic terrorism in this country, the administration says that they need to defend attacks on democracy, so-called, which essentially includes wrong think. And they call on a public-private whole of society sort of effort to combat wrong think, including on social media. And it talks about the fact that the national security apparatus is already engaged in those conversations, et cetera. But it makes a war on wrong think a national security do, imperative. Do they use the term wrong and think? CISA has clearly operated accordingly. They use the term wrong think? They don't use the term wrong think. They're much more euphemistic in it, but they say essentially attacks on democratic institutions, et cetera. I'm not quoting it verbatim, okay. but that is the sort of language that they use as a euphemism for rhetoric they don't like about authorities. Yeah, and I think and it's fair to say- And of course that can encompass virtually anything. Yeah. And we know there's not only the limitless definition of mistis and malinformation, which as you know, it includes facts that lead people to have perspectives or pursue policies they don't like, but we know, for example, that this is an administration that would characterize voter ID as a Jim Crow uh, sort of you know, Bull Connor type, and those are the President Joe Biden's words, racist assaults on our most fundamental institutions. So if you define anything in opposition your, to your agenda as bigoted or dangerous or the stuff of Vladimir Putin, et cetera, Obviously, it's a pretext to clamp down on virtually any rhetoric you don't like from your political opposition. And we've seen it play out in real time accordingly. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I think that uh, wrong think is something that is, of course, a Norwellian term, as I recall. And 
you find people who are defenders of this approach, uh, maybe not the officials in their own, you know, official rhetoric, um, parroting, if not in quite those many words, the whole thrust of the idea that this is part of the control that has to be exercised over society to assure that um, there is not wrong thinking going on, especially thinking that is contrary to things. And, and Ben, I, I want to take a minute to talk, at, if we can, before we part, about um, this healthcare effort that's underway now in Geneva at the World Health Organization, which has an explicit wrong think agenda baked into it as well. Uh, when they announce what they're going to do from on high in the World Health Organization, newly empowered as a result of efforts the Biden administration has been making to help transform it from an advisory body to one that has compulsory power, anybody who dissents from the, well, diktat is to be suppressed, is to be, you know, uh, hounded through the various mechanisms, and I think CISA will be one of them internal to the United States. But they've got um, QR codes that they want everybody to have, everybody in the world to have, and you will be right in the middle of that Chinese social credit system. No kidding, not not a bootleg copy, but a you know authentic and improved variation on the theme. I think used among other things to suppress freedom of thought, freedom of speech freedom of assembly and our other constitutional rights. What do you think, Ben? Well, let's note that we've already seen kind of a preview of this, and CISA was integrally involved in it. CISA, among the ways that CISA indirectly led to censorship during the COVID-19 regime that was imposed upon us, was to create a consortium or help organize, I should say, a consortium of outside research, putatively research and academic organizations into something originally called the Election Integrity Part Partnership, but which then would also mushroom to develop a group called the Virality Project. And the task of these organizations was to essentially mass surveil social media for wrong think, again, originally on elections and then later with respect to the coronavirus, including truth about the coronavirus under the malinformation banner, and then to flag, mass flag for platforms offending content which violated terms of service, which that outside consortia lobbied the social media platforms to create. So in other words, they pushed the platforms to encompass in their terms of service censoring wrong think on matters like the Chinese coronavirus. They mass surveilled those platforms for instances of wrong think and then flagged them to the platforms to get the platforms to mass censor. And of course, this is a much more comprehensive effort than just this outside consortia, but you also had the Biden administration explicitly hounding companies to censor wrong thinkers on Chinese coronavirus. You had lawmakers talking about it. So it was a concerted governmental effort that implicated lawmakers and the government agencies and, of course, the media as well. And so we've already seen a preview to this. And maybe even more insidious is that you have medical schools, for example, who now have courses or starting to develop courses 
on medical mis, dis, and malinformation. So it's incredibly pervasive. It cuts across sectors. And basically, the core philosophy, which manifests itself through the actions of the government agencies and virtually every other influential institution, is that ideas that they don't like are reconstituted as threats to national security, public health, to our democratic institutions, so-called, and that therefore there's a national security or public health or defending infrastructure basis to suspend your rights. And so my core argument ultimately during this hearing was that at a bare minimum, not one cent of our tax dollars should go towards silencing ourselves directly or by proxy. And that is the charge to the Republican House and then also the Congress writ large and then the president. Imagine if it was put to the president's desk. Do you want to veto a bill where Americans are saying, we don't want you silencing us? I don't think we're going to get there, unfortunately, at least under this administration. But the question ought to be out there. Well, the, the, as you point out in your testimony, there, this is a purely political operation. The, what they want to target, and it's in a list in their own reports, they want to, they want to target uh, people who question the or origins of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, the efficacy of vaccines, U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. We're not allowed to talk about that. Uh, and U.S. support to Ukraine. We're not allowed to uh, question whether we should be doing that. On the other hand, and as you point out, they don't target anti-cop conversation. They defund the police. They're anything pro-abortion, they're all for. Um, and environmentalism and climate change, anybody can say anything they want in support of that. But if you're against that, then you become a target for practicing, I love this term, MDM. I'm going to, we all ought to learn that term, misinformation, disinformation, and malinformation. Then the thing that you also point out is that this is not just the agency. You, you touched on it earlier, but, you know, they're, they're getting all the tech companies involved in this, and they convene meetings with Facebook, Meta, Google, Twitter, Reddit, Microsoft, Verizon, Pinterest, LinkedIn, Wikimedia Foundation. They're all in the room doing the bidding of CISA. That's right. And of course, when the federal government is talking to a private entity, the federal, putatively private entity, the federal government is doing so, of course, with the full force of federal powers, up to and including, of course, hyper-regulating these companies. And at the same time, when you have those in Congress talking about issues like Section 230, you know, privilege that's been afforded these companies, and antitrust and a whole slew of issues that obviously impact their business model. So it's with an implicit threat that if you don't go along with this, you might be crushed. Even though the companies, I think, in many cases, and the executives in these companies agree with what the government wants, although even in the Twitter files, we see some dissension on certain issues. Uh, it's also worth noting, and, and it's funny, when, funny in a disturbing sort of way, CISA also engaged in a practice called switchboarding at minimum in 2020, where they would receive reports of mis, dis, or malinformation about elections and actually forward these emails flagging specific tweets and accounts along to the social media companies. That, to me, is one of the most direct ways in which essentially they got people censored. And they were treated as a privileged customer of the tech platforms because those platforms would immediately escalate those issues and then act upon them and respond to CISA about them and also talk to CISA whenever they made 
terms of service changes. But beyond that, in those emails, they had these massive disclaimers, which are almost hilarious, where they say, essentially, CISA is not directing you to censor. CISA makes no comment about the veracity of you know, the mis information, et cetera. It's like they put in the disclaimer what they know they're actually doing, which is leaning on these companies to censor your First Amendment core political speech, which is supposed to be protected. And let's also note there's an incestuous relationship here. You don't have to scratch to, to see very quickly that within the quote-unquote trust and safety integrity teams within the likes of a meta or Twitter or these other organizations, that the, the rosters of the censorship teams are filled with former CIA officials, FBI officials, DOD D officials, and the like. So there's an incestuous revolving door here as well. And one of the most incestuous aspects, as I noted, is the creation to essentially launder these censorship activities of these third-party, quote-unquote, academic and research organizations, four major ones of which came together to form the Election Integrity Partnership. Well, the head of one of those organizations was the former chief security officer at Facebook, Alex Stamos. Stamos, it should be noted, served on serves on CISA's Cybersecurity Advisory Committee. And you can look up and down the rosters of the other three entities to find other officials who worked in CISA's Cybersecurity Advisory Committee, or specifically on its counter MDM subcommittee, which has since been reorganized as its operations have garnered scrutiny. And many of these organizations, of course, also receive federal funding. So it's an incredibly incestuous and pervasive relationship. And one of the things that I fear is that let's say we got to my ideal scenario of not a single cent of US dollars going towards censorship within the federal government or with linked groups outside the federal government. Well, these outside consortia, and in the case of EIP, one that was explicitly created to get around the gap of the First Amendment issues that CISA would have in trying to censor our speech, well, it would exist even if CISA had not organized it and if CISA and other entities within the federal government did not fund it. And that's a scary thing. You can cut off the federal funding, but these outside entities still exist and would still continue to engage in this behavior. So it's a massively complex and pervasive problem. And this is the explicit policy of our entire national security apparatus and really federal government at this point. You know, Ben, it, I, I think the uh, term that's often bandied about to describe all of this is a public-private partnership. And that seems to me to describe fascism pretty much. Would you call what you're talking about here, I mean, I guess you can brand it as uh, other ideologies as well, totalitarianism at the core, whether it's communism or fascism or Marxism or something else, but that's where we are, is it not? And, and if you would, in responding to that as well, just tease out one piece of this in particular, which I think is in need of further discussion, and that is the self-censorship that begins to kick in as the state's power is manifested through these partnerships and outside arrangements. Yeah, I think it's a critical point, the chilling effect here, which is a second or third order, I guess, effect when you have people's views being censored. And then when you go to actually censorship or rather offending content being criminalized or offending views being criminalized, it's obviously 
one thing to find yourself suppressed on social media and another thing to find yourself behind bars. And of course, we've just seen the completion of a case, which is obviously going to be appealed ultimately, but the completion of a case where an individual, a sort of internet troll, was uh, sentenced, was convicted of a crime that could potentially lead him to 10 years behind bars. And that crime was tweeting a satirical tweet about how Hillary Clinton supporters could text their vote to a certain number. The DOJ essentially classified that as depriving people's fundamental right to vote by tricking them, essentially, based on a Ku Klux Klan-focused statute. And now you essentially have a, a, we're in a time where a satirical tweet about an election can lead you to be convicted of a very serious federal offense, as if you're a member of the we also have, obviously, the January 6th cases, which we can talk about the effort to add terrorism enhancement to essentially trumped up trespassing charges. In many instances, the fact that if you go into some of these cases, you have people held in pretrial detention and only let out of pretrial detention on orders that they not watch Fox News or watch MSNBC. This gets into policing our thoughts. And so the chilling effect of this is, how much speech will never be out there for people to grapple with and consider because no one wants to go through the ordeal of potentially being broken yeah. by expressing wrong things. And you know, we're seeing now suppressions of, again, I, you know, I go back to, uh, oddly, in some ways, the medical schools and medical research, there are whole areas that people are not going to research. There wouldn't be funding for you. You'd have your career wrecked if you pursued it. Right. So that's why this is part and parcel, I think, of a much broader effort to squelch dissident speech disfavored by authorities on a whole slew of issues. And it manifests itself in a number of ways. And it's not just on social media, but it's in the real world. And it could lead to you behind bars or your career wrecked or your family imperiled. And, and that's a, that puts us in a very dangerous position because the entire basis of our system rests on free inquiry, free speech, free thought, freedom to listen. Otherwise, you have tyranny. If there is only one established party line and everything else is cast as a national security threat that can be ameliorated through locking people up, to your point, this puts us in uncharted territory, certainly not as anything resembling a republic and it's almost worse when it's, as you note, a public-private partnership. Mm -hmm. We expect governments to act in tyrannical ways, and we've created a system such that that would not happen here. It gets even worse when it's putatively private sector actors, sometimes of their own volition, but other times under government coercion, working hand-in-hand -hand to ensure that you don't need a law to act in tyrannical and dictatorial ways. You have people doing it of their own free will, right. or, or if under coercion, uh, dangerously so and disgustingly so. So it's incredibly perverse, pervasive, and it's dangerous if we want to remain anything resembling a free republic. Well, Cato polled Americans three or four years ago about what they thought they could say, and 62% and said they didn't feel like they could say what they really thought, either in private, either in public or in private. And about my anything? guess is what they really thought, I guess. I don't know about anything, but I guess now that my guess is that number is a lot higher now. And now, but I wanted to make one point that we talk about Department of Homeland Security, which I think was a really bad idea from day one. But you think about that protecting us from foreign uh, 
foreign um, interference. And I think you cited one of the groups involved in the Virality Project that they said that they, they targeted less than 1% of, of the tickets that they, uh, they issued uh, were foreign interference, and the other 99% plus were all domestic. And so this is the Homeland Security focused on us and not, not foreign, uh, foreign enemies. That's right. And of course, the root of this, and you know, it's not worth relitigating it here, but the root of this, the stated root of it was Russian interference in 2016. But as we've seen in, in studies done about what the effect was of the purported Russian campaign to interfere in our 2016 elections, and don't get me wrong, Russia is obviously an adversary and Russia has perfected information operations over the last century uh, as, as all kind of communist and then ex-communist regimes who, are, who remain dictatorial do. But if you look at the sum total of their efforts, it was negligible. Now, obviously, Democrats argued otherwise, particularly on the Senate intel side during the Trump years. And part of this was about an information operation, I would argue, to portray Trump as a traitor, a Trump-Russia collusion conspiracy, which itself was a conspiracy theory foisted on the country, and which the Durham report has brought into stark relief, was a fraud and a hoax with unbelievably, almost incalculable damage done to our rights, our liberties, and the invalidation of tens of millions of votes, essentially, and beyond. But again, the, the, the root of this was missed dis and malinformation, I would argue, that Russian interference was widespread and pervasive and it swung that election or it had a massive impact. The evidence just does not show that at all. And many of the people who were invested in propagating and perpetuating that narrative were the very ones working within these outside consortia to hand in hand with government censor domestic wrong think. So this foreign domestic switcheroo as Mike Benz, leader of one of the organizations who's been on top of this and done some great reporting and research and work on, the foreign to domestic switcheroo is one of the most disturbing, but I think it parallels what we've seen more broadly, which is this turning of the global war on terror from a foreign one to a domestic one, with Americans as the preeminent domestic terror threat, and consequently, that to ameliorate it, we need to go after the thoughts of the wrong thinkers who might engage in some violence at some point. Okay, I think that's a brilliant summary. We, we, Frank, a, a final point. Well, just we're gonna, I, I just want to say we, we want to get you back to keep talking about this. This is this problem's not going away. Frank, one just one further fill-up is many of those same perpetrators of this fraud were themselves working with the Russians. I mean, that's the further you know, despicable irony of it all. And, and Ben, I would just say in closing that, that if you don't like what's happening internal to the United States and you've done a masterful job exposing it, watch this space. Because as I said earlier, the idea that we're now going to have inst international institutions granted the authority to be monitoring and surveilling and otherwise controlling what we say, what we think, what we do, perhaps contracting out some of it to, you know, local authorities, but perhaps using these other extra national techniques like, you know, digital IDs and social credit systems operating on the basis of them to control us in ways that we haven't even comprehended yet, let alone experienced. And that's, uh, that's the coming 
I think, danger that we're facing. And your warnings are so important to help stave it off. God bless you. So, Ben, thank you. Um, hope to have you back. This is uh, we've just touched the uh, top of the tip of the iceberg here, but uh, you've done tremendous work on this and a lot of other topics. And so we we're just really happy to be Frank and I've been doing this together for a while. I'd like to have you part of the uh, the global anti-conspiracy yeah. team. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> anyway, so this has been the Bill Walton Show here with Ben Weingarten uh, talking about his recent testimony to Congress about CISA. And I highly recommend you look it up and take a look because uh, it's uh, it's chilling what's happening. I think we covered that. And I'm also here with Frank Gaffney, uh, founder of Center for Security Policy and host of a terrific show on uh, Real America's Voice. Indeed. Uh, with Bill Walton frequently. Occasionally with, with, with me. Uh, and anyways, you can find this show and, uh, and uh, on all the major platforms, including Rumble, YouTube, uh, Substack, and uh, uh CPAC now on Monday nights. And uh, so, so thanks for joining. As always, send us your comments either through the website or through Substack about people and topics you'd like us to cover. There's a lot going on and we need to uh, stay on top of it. So thanks for joining. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Want more? Click the subscribe button or head over to thebillwaltonshow.com to choose from over 100 episodes. You can also learn more about our guest on our Interesting People page. And send us your comments. We read everyone and your thoughts help us guide the show. If it's easier for you to listen, check out our podcast page and subscribe there. In return, we'll keep you informed about what's true, what's right, and what's next. Thanks for joining.